When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. You've either got the Tories taxing the hell out of the oil and gas people or you've got Labour absolutely discouraging them from making any investment at all. I mean, Rishi Sunak, he doesn't even know what a space hopper and a chopper are. He was born in 1980. He wasn't even alive in the 70s. You've seen this explosion in young people thinking they're born in the wrong body. For people like me who are incubating something in their bodies or for people with, you know, heart disease or whatever it was, time didn't stop for those people. Time carried on going. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. As the nation obsesses about Phil and Holly, who? Our politicians are starting to wheel out some actual policies. With Labour taking on the role of government-in-waiting, Keir Starmer's decided now is the time to become the Just Stop Oil Party, confirming a future ban on new North Sea oil and gas projects. The Tories responded with the 1970s Tribute Act, floating the idea of price (laughs) controls on supermarkets, albeit voluntary, and they got short shrift, with the boss of Asda talking of unintended consequences. When it comes to food policy at least, it looks like there are no grown-ups in number 10, remarked one financier. The fight over Boris's WhatsApp messages continues the latest somewhat surreal twist in the UK's Covid inquiry, which is yet to hear from a single witness, but has already cost taxpayers £100 million. Sweden produced its final Covid report in February 2022, Alison. It took just a few months. How long until ours emerges? I say it can be rushed through in seven to ten years, because that's the British way. But before we tackle these weighty subjects, Alison, with our usual mix of levity, acumen and anger, let's reflect on recent events at the Oxford Union, where an academic called Kathleen Stock was trying to get a word in. How cool is Kathleen Stock? I mean, absolutely phenomenal, cool, lucid, turning up at the Oxford Union, being berated by these overheated toddlers. But Before we get into that, Liam, I I don't know if you saw this week, Canada's Prime Minister, the irrevocably woke (laughs) Justin Trudeau, (laughs) criticising events in the US where he said, and I quote... Here it comes, acronym (laughs) soup, here it comes. He said, to SLGBTQI plus rights constantly being attacked. Now, I say this sounds like a very bad hand of Scrabble. I mean, you know, you really wouldn't want to get that. And so I asked on social media, what does it mean, 2SLGBTQI+. And somebody explained that 2S is two-spirit, a term within some indigenous cultures, meaning a person with both a feminine and a masculine spirit living in the same body. That's not you, Halligan, is it? (laughs) 
I've got any, I've got any feminine okay. spirit lurking in that rower's bulk. And then, and then I got a hold my beer comment from another person saying Trudeau is a total lightweight. It's two SLGBTQIA plus, or you may as well go home. And apparently the A means asexual. But where is the H for heterosexual? We don't even get a bloody letter, do we? <laughs> it's just completely mad. <laughs> I mean, how are you meant to respond to something like that? I mean, Canada, a country I much admire, got many relatives there. Some of the things they've been doing under Trudeau mm. is just complete oh. madness. You know, parents prosecuted for discussing trans rights and transitioning with their young children and trying to convince them to not have gender reassignment surgery. I mean, just mad. So Kathleen Stock was invited to take part in a talk at the Oxford Union and the leading feminist was telling the students that some universities were becoming propaganda machines for a particular point of view. And I think that that is absolutely beyond any doubt now that it's in academia that we're seeing the seeing the worst excesses so youngsters young people who should be being exposed to all kinds of ideas particularly ideas they don't find very favorable but student activists infiltrated the oxford debating chamber chanting no more dead trans kids well i would argue that pursuing the transgender ideology at all cost is leading to children's deaths and indeed suicides um, because a lot of very vulnerable adolescents are being led down that route, sometimes irreversible route, when they've had hormones and gender reassignment. Uh, you like this, Liam, that police officers removed one Riz Posnet, they, them, Riz Posnet, a transgender activist who disrupted uh, Kathleen Stock's interview. Riz Posnet's hand, uh, they, them, was found to be glued to the floor when officers stepped in. But of course, the really great bit about Riz Posnet, which who could predict this, is that Riz, Riz is not sure of what I think originally female, but we can we, we should be careful. We never know. Riz's dad is a wealthy businessman, Robert Postnit, a climate zealot themselves. And Riz attended the Anglo-European College in Hertfordshire, £14,000 fees a term. Another sign of the working class is that it's, it, it's all, the, all the identitarians, aren't they? I mean, they're spoiled brats, Halligan, aren't they? I think that there's been a bit of a breakthrough, actually, in recent months when it comes to culture wars. I think... The likes of the swimming governing bodies, athletics governing bodies, yeah. rowing governing yeah. bodies. There's the first shafts of sunlight, of common sense breaking through this, these clouds of confusion uh, and indulgence. And I think the fact that people like Sharon Davis now are rapidly getting national treasure status, mm. somebody who was very early uh, on this debate on Planet Normal, as you'll remember. Yes. Uh, and I must point out, um, in our sister publication, The Spectator, there's a really fabulous piece of writing by Debbie Hayton, who's a teacher and a journalist. Um, she's a trans woman. She's a very, very fine writer indeed. And she gives the Oxford protesters short shrift. Yes. They and the rest of the Rainbow Brigade, says Debbie, need to get over themselves and find real meaning in life that extends beyond their transgender identities. Unless they go around imposing their implausible ideas on others and influencing vulnerable children, nobody else really cares how they choose 
to identify. And this really chimed with me because, as I've said in the past, I spent the thick end of a year working in a trans bar in Sydney as a young man and got to know many, many um, trans women, became very friendly with them. Um, I'm still in touch with some of them to this day. And that was exactly their sentiment too. They don't want to be part of some massive national debate. They don't want to be political footballs. They just want to get on with their lives with dignity and their respect intact and their self-esteem. It must be really difficult to feel that you're trapped in the wrong body. That no doubt exists. Uh, And people like Debbie Hayton and many of my friends back in the day in Australia uh, have written and spoken with huge eloquence about that difficulty. But the more young people, in particular activists, whip up a storm about these issues, the harder it is for many trans people who just want to do their thing. And I must say, I do believe that the UK for the most part, is extremely tolerant about these things. Most people don't give a monkey's how you want to identify. They just want you to be, you know, as happy as you can be. But it's when, as Debbie Hayton so eloquently said, you go around imposing implausible ideas on mm. others and influencing vulnerable children. That's Or, you know, people in sport coming into women's sport as trans women you know, chasing their own dreams by ruining the dreams of others. <laughs> but it, but it has become, it has become cult like Liam. And I think I was just looking up some figures earlier. So in 2011, only 210 were referred to the Tavistock Clinic, the now disgraced Gids Gender Identity Clinic, which is gradually being disbanded, although not fast enough. Report into that found that. Um, far from children being given the time to pause, to think about whether they were doing the right thing. They were basically on a conveyor belt to transitioning and and some very brutal surgery. And the current or the latest figures for referral to the Tavistock were 3,585. So in just about a decade, just over a decade, you've seen this explosion in uh, young people uh, thinking they're born in the wrong body. And I don't think that reflects the reality at all. I think that reflects a kind of indoctrination. And the other thing coming back to the Kathleen Stock thing, I think is that what these people do is they bully in the debate Uh, They don't want to take on lucid, highly intelligent people like Kathleen Stock, who is only making a point about biological reality, which is that a man can't become a woman and a woman can't become a man. I mean, any biologist would tell you that. But they insist in the most aggressive and shrill manner that something that is it it is Lewis Carroll, really, you know, it is. We are through the looking glass. It is, you know, we are through the, the Queen glass. says this person with a penis is a woman, so you will agree. And those of us who say, no, that's not right, we are then called all sorts of things, you know, TERFs and cisgender. They've come up with an entire vocabulary uh, which is used for uh, describing normal wet men and men and women. And it was interesting, Liam, in the Oxford Union talk, Kathleen Stock was responding to this idea, you know, that that um, 
transgender women who are born male shouldn't be allowed into, say, places like female changing rooms. And she told the union that people who say that trans people are not violent, so this is the argument, they'll do no harm. But she says they should speak to a criminologist. So at least 50% of trans women in prison are there for sexual assault. And we've seen, haven't we, these opportunistic men, I wouldn't dignify with them with the term, trans women trying to get transfers to women's prisons or indeed deciding to change gender during their prosecutions, rapists trying to claim they're female so that they can be admitted to women's prisons. So yeah, I agree with you, Liam. I think think that there are positive things now. I think we're seeing more more confident pushback. Rishi Sunak said this week in defence of Kathleen Stock that the Oxford student debate should be allowed. Um, and it was important that students heard uh, and debated with gender critical feminist Kathleen Stock. So a little bit more, little bit more steel in the government backbone on these very very important matters. That brings us neatly, doesn't it, to the the leader of the opposition's energy policy, which will, um, uh, I think, I think, um, I think the planet normal off-road squirrel hunting, uh, hunting for, for twigs for fuel is going to be on the cards if Keir Starmer has. I don't know about you. I've been, I'm spending this coming weekend sharpening up my bivouacking <laughs> techniques. So, so Sakir. <laughs> Um, who, who, who either either playing uh, to the sort of pandering to the green vote, you know, whipping up eco fervor amongst the green vote, uh, proposing to grant no new licenses for oil and gas production in the North Sea, turning the UK into a clean energy superpower, or according to taste, a cold, dark place where there's no electricity and you can't charge your phone. But it does also, there's also an interesting wrinkle to this story because it turns out that Labour had got very significant donations, over a million and a half pounds from the Just Stop Oil donor and green industrialist Dale Vince. Could the Labour leader um, be trying to pander to his very generous benefactor. It does seem extremely odd to me that the Labour Party is accepting very large donations from the financier behind this very aggressive environmental group, which has been disrupting lots of um, sporting events and the Chelsea Flower Show, hasn't it, Liam? It has. Look, the UK oil and gas industry employs tens of thousands of people. It's an extremely important part of our economy, not just from a security point of view, but also from a financial and exporting point of view. It's madness to say that we don't need more oil and gas. Even the Climate Change Committee, which is the kind of government's in-house green cheerleader, even they acknowledge that we will be using oil and gas in this country until the late 2030s at the earliest. And that's, you know, a very Panglossian, pro-green optimistic view of how quickly the technology can shift. I would say it will be at least for the rest of our lives, possibly for the rest of this century, we'll still need oil and gas, Alison. I say that even though I understand we need to 
wean ourselves off fossil fuels and broadly support that objective. It's all about the pace and how you do it. To think that you can also impose a proper windfall tax on oil and gas companies operating in the North Sea when they are already paying 75% of their profits to the exchequer is madness. Those profits don't necessarily go to dividends and to shareholders. Of course, some of them do. It's a risky business drilling in one of the most hostile environments in the world, the floor of the North Sea. But that those profits are turned around and reinvested into more projects, more infrastructure. Reinvested, by the way, Sakir, if you hadn't noticed, into green technology too. A lot of the companies that are drilling in the North Sea. They're not the big oil majors in the main. They are generally smaller UK-centric companies with lots of debt, taking lots of risks. They are also gearing up to be part of the so-called green revolution. I was up in Aberdeen quite recently as we discussed, Alison, and you are not going to get that green investment. We are not going to become you know, the offshore wind capital of the world, which we could become, as but we need to learn how to store that energy, of course, without the oil and gas companies who have the maritime geological and energy sector expertise. So it's crazy to kill off these companies just to appeal to a kind of, you know, student vote that's going to vote for you in the main anyway. And this is really just economically illiterate, in my view, and amounts to posturing. I'm absolutely furious about it, Liam. I mean, how many acts of self-harm is this country supposed to sustain? I mean, we've already blown 400 billion on furlough and COVID and test and trace and so on. And now here we have another act of, you know, unwarranted national suicide. I mean, also underpinning it is just this absolute denial and hypocrisy. So since Russia invaded Ukraine, we've obviously seen how important energy security is, haven't we, to the nation? And as you say, we are going to be using huge amounts of oil and gas to generate electricity under any conceivable scenario for decades to come. But what we're doing instead to, to look virtuous is becoming reliant on foreign supplies and whether that's electricity um, coming from Norway or whether it's um, uh, liquefied gas uh, being imported from the US. Absolutely, you know, we had to talk about this yesterday, didn't we? And you were saying to me that this creates a massive carbon footprint, importing gas 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. We're actually importing gas from the United States where fracking is is allowed and is, is a roaring success. But we're not allowed to frack here because the purse-lipped purists say, oh, goodness me, no, that's absolutely dirty and disgusting. So instead, we become dependent on foreign supplies uh, just to make ourselves look greener, which I think is morally reprehensible and also dangerous because we do, we simply don't know, do we, at what point, you know, if there's a very bad winter, the Netherlands or Norway, will they decide, oh, hang on, we, you know, we want to save some of this stuff for ourselves so we won't be giving it to Britain. I, I just think we should be becoming more self-sufficient in everything. We have um, 
We're blessed with bountiful supplies of of uh, fossil fuels and so on, which could sustain us while we're making this quite complex uh, transition to more green energy. And I just I just think, you know, you've either got the Tories taxing the hell out of the oil and gas people or you've got Labour absolutely discouraging them from making any investment at all. And the, and the results of those things are exactly the same, aren't they? And I think it's potentially ruinous. Keir Starmer has to be careful. He needs Scotland in order to get a working majority in Parliament. He needs to make serious inroads in Scotland. I wonder what the very shrewd Anas Sawar thinks, the Labour leader in Scotland, of course, thinks of this latest intervention by Keir Starmer. The Scottish oil and gas industry is very important to the Scottish economy, the broader UK economy, and, as I say, is the source of tens of thousands of of jobs, hundreds of thousands if you include the supply chains uh, as well. Mm. The Tories have countered with the idea that they're going to tell the supermarkets to put caps on prices. And <laughs> the likes of Stuart Rose, who's ostensibly a, a Conservative, he was a huge Remainer, yes. like a lot of the big retailers were. Yeah. But he's obviously a very, very bright man. He's currently the chairman of ASDA, he's led MS, Ocado, Arcadia. You know, he's a very, very serious bloke. And he says this is going to have unintended consequences. The British Retail Consortium have said it will make not an iota of difference. Of course, supermarkets have some items that are loss leaders. And I do think that there has been a bit of sharp practice from the big retailers. They would deny that. Big retailers, of course, we shouldn't forget, were given a basic monopoly during lockdown. Yeah. But the big retailers were allowed to carry on. Um, making enormous amounts of money given that so many of us were staying at home for for so long and baking and eating ourselves stupid. So I do think the government should have done something. It was right, finally, to get the supermarkets to come into the Treasury for a chat. I think the tone of that chat, the communique afterwards, was far too cuddly and friendly. Uh, it's the Competition and Markets Authority that really need to be leading the way on this rather than the government evoking sort of Ted Heath 1970s but, but Liam, what, style what, what, policies. You know, you with your big economics brain, what the hell are they playing at? It's like some sort of terrible Edward Heath tribute band. And that's that's not something you'd want to see, is it? In their ponchos arriving in the Austin Maxi for the gig. I mean, you know, Ed, Edward Heath meets... The... He was an organ scholar at Balliol. <laughs> ponchos, he's not a member of the Gypsy Kings. <laughs> I think Edward Heath meets the base. Bang, 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 Maria, Takero, bang, bang, bang. But the 1970s <laughs> were bloody bad enough the first time. I mean, what are they thinking of? I mean, is there no, is there, I mean, is there no thinking? This is what I want, I want to know. I'm looking, looking to the, oh, by the way, before we go on, I did think it was very funny. I mean, Rishi Sunak, he doesn't even know what a space hopper and a chopper are. <laughs> he, doesn't. he was born in 1980. He wasn't even alive in the 70s. <laughs> Oh, we could tell him a thing or two about white, wet-look boots and um, Starsky and Hutch. You know, I just think, are they, are they out of ideas? I mean, they seem to be avoiding, uh, you know, lots of lots of the main issues, everything. We, you know, we've obviously still got the sort of backwash, haven't we, from those vast immigration figures. 
Um, apparently somebody said that in the cabinet they were quite relaxed about it because they thought the issue of immigration was off the radar. I thought you, you, you wait till the election, mate. You'll, you'll see that it's not off the radar. So I think now they, they've completely lost touch if they were ever in touch with, with the people. I, I did a big interview with Miriam Cates, which is in the Telegraph at the weekend. And Miriam is part of this group with Lee Anderson and other, uh, Red Wall MPs called the New Conservatives. And essentially they are trying to drag the party back towards electability, you know, away from the slightly effete Oliver Dowden, we might as well be Lib Dems party. Actually, before we go on, I just want to tell you, somebody said about the, um, although I work from home, so I don't want to hear, I don't want to be too rude about people working from home, but, you know, they said that since the pandemic, so few people have gone back to work. In fact, the entire civil service is working from home. But do you know what they call them? Do you know what the name, do you know what the acronym is? Gone. Twats, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, which I thought was really good. Anyway, <laughs> that's one for free listeners, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. But just quickly, co-pilot, what is the thinking about what what are they thinking now? I mean, they really, really need to come up with some policies with big appeal to the electorate, to young people. I'm, I'm just not seeing it. I think what we've got here, Alison, from both the main parties is the emergence of policy by focus group. These aren't thought-through proposals. These aren't well-worked ideas that are costed and funded and seriously thought through that can be put forward to the electorate. They've just been talking to focus groups. They're angry about food prices. They're angry about the oil companies. So they come up with very, very dogmatic, simple ideas that they hope the electorate, I'm afraid, will be too thick to see through. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Since the first lockdown in March 2020, here on Planet Normal, we've talked a lot about the likely consequences of closing the country and turning large parts of the NHS into a COVID-only service. We've interviewed leading oncologists, haven't we, co-pilot, like Professors Carol Sikora, Pat Price, Gordon Wishart. They've all warned us about the dreadful knock-on effect of not seeing cancer patients quickly enough. Well, today we welcome aboard the rocket one of those cancer patients. John Chappell was a 32-year-old music journalist turned PR in January 2020. He'd just married Nikki, his childhood sweetheart, when he went to the doctor with a stomach problem. John was a lockdown sceptic. He told friends he thought it was pretty obvious that shutting down the country was a huge error which would, quote, kill more people than it saved in the long run. What John didn't know, what he couldn't know, Liam, was that one of those people whose life lockdown might take was his. This is what John says. After two years of wrong diagnosis, delayed appointments, missed opportunities to deal with a disease before it metastasized, 
John was told he had grade four bowel cancer and the NHS could do no more for him. Angry at a health service which had caused his problem in the first place, John Chapel defiantly set up a GoFundMe page to enable him to pay for pioneering cancer vaccine treatment in Germany. It's, it's not even available here, certainly not on the NHS. Luckily, I was able to publicise John's fundraising in The Telegraph and on social media. More of that later. First, I began by asking John Chapel to tell us what happened when he first sought medical help. They did some tests, referred me for a a colonoscopy. This was the first example of something getting pushed back due to COVID. That initial appointment was pushed back, I think, three or four months until the summer. Um, I went in for that appointment. They found something called a polyp. They're benign. They're not cancerous, but they're considered precancerous. So they're considered there's a good chance that eventually turn into cancer. The sensible thing to do would have been to hoik it out there and then. Unfortunately, I think it was a bit big at the time. They didn't have the right tool for it. So he said, I'll get you back in. We'll take it out. Um, The way it was communicated to me, it wasn't a big deal. It was just something that some people had and it would be taken out. Obviously, there was another lockdown, then there was another lockdown, and and, and the whole time things kept getting pushed back. And as you say, it sort of turned into a a COVID-only service. You'd had this polyp found. You needed to get it out. What were your communications then with, with the health service about when this was going to happen? My communications were that I would periodically get a letter through the post through one or two private companies, which the NHS had obviously sort of foisted this thing off to. And they were letters which effectively said, you're in the queue, you're going to get seen, you know, don't worry too much about it. So I I didn't worry about it too much. Did symptoms start to get worse? They started to get worse, and that's when I started to get worried. They didn't get worse for probably six to eight months, maybe. I don't think they got noticeably worse. By the time I was actually seen, I mean, I was just in in agony. Uh, All the chasing was on my end, you know. I still had to keep phoning the hospital and saying, when am I going to be seen? Something's not right. So obviously I didn't know it was cancer at that point. I had what I thought was sciatica sort of pains, you know, numb legs, that sort of stuff, which I now know in hindsight was a tumour sort of pushing on the nerves or whatever. Before we talk about that and the surgery, you say that you discovered later that the doctor who performed the colonoscopy had marked the removal not urgent. This was something I only discovered when I started investigating it. I decided to appoint some some legal counsel to see if there's anything that can be done on that front. They obviously did all the work of pulling all my medical records, getting all this stuff that I didn't have access to. The guy that did the colonoscopy, even though this polyp was sufficiently large that he didn't have the tools available to remove it at the time, he marked it as yeah not urgent on my medical records because I was... 32 at the time it was considered in the I suppose the medical orthodoxy at the time that someone that was 32 years old it's extremely unlikely that it would turn cancerous in the uh, immediate future they opened something called a serious incident report in the hospital they did a whole investigation and they've discovered that this was you know a serious failing on their end and they've changed their guidelines in future so that they'll treat every polyp that's discovered as, as being sort of equally urgent as needed to come out despite the patient's age john you're a clever bloke you obviously were aware that this was not a good situation But even you, being sort of clever and articulate, it was very difficult, wasn't it, to access any service at that point? It absolutely was. I think I'm 
like you and a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people you've had on, I felt very much like a sort of voice crying out in the wilderness at times. And I found it extremely surprising that there were lots of other intelligent people that just went along with this. It seemed to me ex- extremely obvious that just because time, I know time didn't stop. A lot of people did feel like time had stopped. If you were furloughed and, you you know, you were... It was a nice summer. You were sat in your garden sipping wine and baking banana bread. And it probably did feel like time had stopped for you. But for people like me who were incubating something in their bodies or for people with, you know, heart disease or whatever it was, time didn't stop for those people. Time carried on going. Just because everything else ground to a halt, it didn't mean that these diseases didn't keep progressing. Obviously, it's caused me a lot of you know trauma and my, and my family and it's it's had incredible sort of um, emotional effects but in terms of from a pure financial angle as well i would say if the nhs had to just cut this thing out i mean it would have cost them next next to nothing i've had 18 rounds of chemotherapy now um including drug that i gather is quite expensive a sort of targeted immunotherapy sort of treatment which is costing a lot of money i've had radiotherapy i've had some you know just surgery so yeah if they just had have been a little bit more forward thinking a little less reactive and a bit more proactive i mean it would have been in everyone's best interest from 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 an emotional and from a financial point of view yeah i mean it doesn't help anyone this sort of failure to to get on top of these things before they get so bad did it make you feel angry absolutely i mean i I think that's that's probably the main emotion that's keeping me going at the moment the sort of (laughs) bloody mindedness to just keep persevering because um i felt at times this is probably unfair, but in terms of how I've been refused further treatment and further surgery, I sort of have felt at times like it would just be easier if I just went away and, you know, curled up in a corner and died. And that would be the, the, the easiest thing for everyone. But I absolutely refuse to do so. It's not my fault I'm in this mess. It is someone else's fault we're in this mess. And I think they have a responsibility to do something about it. So I'm not going away, you know. Were you in shock when you got that diagnosis? Were, were the family with you, Nikki, your wife with you when they, you were told that? It's just, just a, they didn't actually remove the polyp because the polyp by that time had turned into cancer. So I, I went in for this this uh, operation to remove the polyp, and obviously he saw what was in there, saw it was cancer, and there was no removing the polyp anymore because presumably it's been swallowed up by all the other stuff that's grown around it. So yeah, I initially got taken to a, a little room in the hospital, and they said some nurses will be with you shortly, and I thought, oh God, I know exactly what's coming now. They told me I had cancer in that December and then I think it was the first week of January I I went in and met this oncologist and um, so I'd had a few scans I sort of had an inkling beforehand that it it wasn't going to be good and then obviously it had we were told by the doctor that yeah it's stage four we've also seen some um, lesions in in your liver Stage four just means it's spread to another organ. But yeah, it's like it's like being hit by a truck, you know? When someone says stage four, I mean, I know now that it's not, but at the time, I didn't know anything about cancer. And that sounded to me like it, he was saying it was terminal. And this is, you know, you're too, you're too far gone. And, you know, you hear stage four cancer, you think, well, that's that then. Yeah, I remember coming out of there and saying, thinking I was going to die and saying I don't want to be scared to die. That was my first instinct. I was already preparing myself. Uh, to die you know and I thought there's nothing worse than people who are 
who are terrified to die and I really didn't want that for myself but I was already sort of planning how to die and not be scared about it. In February 2022, now let's remind ourselves, this is two whole years after you first sought help from the doctor with a stomach complaint. You did finally start treatment, John, radiotherapy, followed by chemotherapy. And in July, you had surgery to remove the right side of your liver. And the chemo and surgery did seem to work, but the cancer grew back in your liver within a couple of months and that's when you were told no further treatment was possible did it feel like a door was then being slammed shut yeah it definitely did and I think the I don't want to criticize my oncologist and my care since they, it was diagnosed because it has actually been pretty good once they actually figured out I had cancer but it did feel a bit yeah, like a door had been closed a little bit. I feel like they did give up on me a little bit then, I think. Initially, I was whacked with all this high doses of radiation, high dose of chemotherapy. Then we got to the surgery. I think if it... I was off chemo for about three or four months, I think, following the surgery because you have to to let it heal. And I think if it hadn't have grown back in that time, it would have carried on being full steam ahead. We're, we're going to try and cut out the main tumour now. You know, it's a chance if you've been cured. But because it had grown back, they're obviously reluctant to go back in. They decided it won't be of clinical benefit to me because it's still a risky operation and they don't just want to keep opening you up over again and again. And I, I do feel like that the thinking changed a little bit at, at that point they basically said your best bet is to stay on chemo indefinitely it's a horrible thing to be told chemotherapy it does work but it's, it's absolutely horrible I mean it's how, how many days a month do you feel what you would think of as relatively normal a month probably four or five days I have it in two weekly cycles I generally feel sort of human towards the end of that that two weekly period just before the next dose of chemotherapy. I generally get, you know, one good weekend every two weeks. So, yeah, I'll get a couple of all right weekends a month. And obviously there's a lot of pressure then to try and fit things in and make the most of it and things. So um, it's really horrible, horrible stuff. So to, to be told that... Um, by uh by the experts that we recommend you just you just stay on this stuff indefinitely to try and keep it at bay it's not really much of an option as far as i'm concerned john you set up a, a gofundme page to crowdfund private treatment you had an initial target of seventy five thousand pounds we will give a link to that page in the show notes so listeners can show their support for you john i know they will want to now, you write on that page, oh dear, I'm going to get upset if I read this out. I refuse to accept that this is the only life I have left. I'm young, recently married, otherwise healthy, and a victim of mistakes by the same health service, which now refuses me further treatment. I have to believe I can still be cured, and I owe it to my loved ones to do everything I can to get there. Now, John, this treatment you're hoping to get, very expensive, not available on the NHS or even in the UK. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so if you hear about people talk about cancer vaccines, which sometimes come up in, in the news every now and then, they're called dendritic cell therapy. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's basically the same principle as a vaccine where a vaccine would stimulate your immune system to to fight a disease. That's It's the same principle they basically take your blood analyze it for all the various 
markers and mutations and that sort of stuff which makes your cancer your cancer which makes it unique to you and then they're able to create a vaccine based on that information so the idea is that you have these jabs and then it stimulates your your body to attack the cancer it's it's amazing stuff really and i think I don't know, I suppose in 20, 30 years or so, I mean, this should be the standard treatment for cancer, these sort of personalised treatments. But at the moment, it's just, it's so expensive and it's in such an early stage. So unfortunately, I'm having to go out with the begging bowl a little bit. It is unfortunate, isn't it, that such personalised treatments are still decades away from being available on the NHS. I was talking earlier to Professor Pat Price on your behalf. Pat is now saying that we're receiving a very rudimentary standard of cancer care in the UK compared to what patients can expect in other countries with a similar size of economy. What do you think about that, the fact that you have to go raise money? Does that upset you? Does it anger you? It it does, yeah. I think, obviously... I mean, it's a huge use of resources. We all, we all spend a lot of money on it and we all expect an extremely high standard of care. I think maybe that was... Pe- people trust it, don't they? People trust the NHS. It's, people people often say our NHS, don't they? Like they feel a degree of ownership over it. It sort of feels like everyone's very proud of it and people trust it. But I think that was partially sort of what went wrong with me a little bit I shouldn't I think I trusted the the doctors and the health service a, a little bit too much I thought you know if, if, if it's serious they're not just going to leave me with it are they it's you know you have to you have to trust the doctors you have to trust the professionals and I think you do have to really really advocate for yourself because I think the people that make the loudest noise probably are the ones that get seen first and actually get things sorted when they need to be sorted so I don't know what countries a professor is referring to where it's better. Or... Cancer care is better in every other European country, I think, apart from one. Of 18 developed countries, we come the lowest survival rates for all common cancers. So that gives you so much for our NHS. What would you say now, looking back, what do you think? I mean, the whole experience, the lockdown. I mean, we know, Pat Price says, every four weeks of delay, that increases your risk of a bad outcome I mean do you think that they should have done it differently well yeah absolutely I think the the excess death statistics I mean basically speak for themselves don't they personally I I said from the beginning that the whole thing was a was a I mean it was a huge overreaction wasn't it as you said it was you know it didn't didn't pose almost any risk to people who were who weren't elderly and were otherwise healthy and I'm not saying those people should have been sacrificed on the altar of covid but i think the the sensible thing to do would have been to tell people who were immunocompromised or otherwise vulnerable that they should be shielding and the rest of us should have gone with our lives because what happened to avoid sacrificing those people what we've done is sacrificed a, a well a generation of young people almost we've we sacrificed younger people otherwise healthy people like me to these otherwise easily preventable health conditions to to protect people from covid it's it's almost like we you know i don't want to sound ageist or anything but it it feels a bit like we sacrificed the young to save the old a little bit and there's no shame in saying that because that's the first time that's been done in almost any 
previous example, people always said young people and children first. And we we reversed that wisdom. Shame on us. Shame on us. You have had this phenomenal response to your GoFundMe appeal, £67,000 in just a few days. But you're saying 50000 is a conservative estimate for all the consultations, creations of the vaccines, the vaccines themselves. And you say, John, it will take the kindness of strangers to help you afford it. Well, I think strangers, I know Planet Normal listeners are very kind. What what sort of war chest do you think you reasonably need now going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I said 50,000, I think, would probably would, would get me the initial consultations, the creation of the vaccine and probably the first four vaccines, which if they work, is a great start to getting the ball rolling. From what I understand from other people who have had these and it's been curative, they sort of need a, a maintenance dose of them every year or so to um, keep keep your immune system stimulated and keep the, the vaccine effect going. So I think it's, it's going to be an ongoing cost for me, unfortunately. So I think... A hundred would be would be absolutely amazing. I'm, I don't know if it's going to be possible to get to that. Yeah, I think unfortunately this isn't going away. And even if you do cure your cancer, there's the chances of it coming back are extremely high. Especially seeing in in my case where it's been seen to be quite aggressive. So whatever I do earn and don't don't spend straight away is just going to go away for further treatment. So yeah, it's it's probably going to have to last me a, a number of years. Hopefully. Well, I think you sound amazing. I'm more upset than you. <laughs> absolutely amazing. And here on Planet Normal, we, we love fighting spirit. You're absolutely amazing. And, and we feel so cross about the lockdown and what it's done to so many thousands of people who deserved a lot better from our, our health service. And we are sending you all our prayers, hopefully large amounts of money. Come on, listeners. Godspeed. John, you're fantastic. Thank you for sparing the time to tell us about your story. Thanks, Alison, and thanks everyone who's who's listening. Alison, I must say, I think that interview was what Planet Normal is all about. Sometimes we interview cabinet ministers, former heads of British intelligence, big name, headline grabbing interviews. But some of our best interviews, I think, are with Planet Normal listeners, ordinary people in extraordinary situations, and how well he speaks. What an incredible person. John is. Yeah, he really is. And I think I was getting more upset than he was. He he does try to speak calmly. But of course, he, he is, I'm afraid. He, I was thinking about it after I'd spoken to him, Liam. There are things that happen in history, aren't there? There are tides on which people are buffeted about. And John was living a lovely life. You know, he just got married they were going to move out of a sort of tiny one bedroom flat with a, he and Nikki with a view to, you know, starting a family and so on. And suddenly, just because this bizarre thing happened, I mean, a monumental thing, the COVID pandemic, to which the government overreacted, egged on, it has to be said, by a hysterical media class. And because of that, because our health service, almost uniquely, almost uniquely in the developed world, our health service stopped treating large swathes of people. So that's what happened to John. If he'd had his polyp removed in early 2020, when he was scheduled to have it in March 2020, look, I'm not saying that he eventually wouldn't have gone on to develop some kind of cancer, but it would have, you know, it would have given him a really good fighting chance. Instead of which, 
the first thing he knew about it was almost a death sentence, which you can imagine how traumatic that was for him and Nikki. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about cancer and delays in cancer from great people we've had talking to us. And what sticks in my mind is Professor Pat Price saying every four week delay before diagnosis and then starting treatment is a a 10% increase in the probability that the outcome will not be at all favourable. John wasn't given any treatment until almost two years after he first took himself to the doctor. Now, we do have some rather amazing news. We can always rely, I think, on the kindness of strangers. So strangers, Daily Telegraph readers, my my article about John went up last night. Uh, That's Tuesday evening. And we've just gone over the £100,000 target on John's GoFundMe page absolutely astonishing. Originally, it was a £75,000 target. I urged him to lift it. So we are, as I speak, at £101,290 raised for treatment, hopefully state-of-the-art treatment, which will at least buy John some time. And I just want to say, Liam, that Planet Normal listeners will be able to find in the show notes if they wish to donate to John. I've donated. I'm encouraging other people to donate. The paper, the Telegraph is donating. And and John sent us this message. I'm supposedly a writer, but I am really struggling to find the words. I'm just overwhelmed. The generosity of people is unbelievable. And I know it's a cliche, but it has rather restored my faith in humanity after being so badly let down earlier on. As I said on the GoFundMe page, aside from the money, all the donors have given me a gift that's completely priceless, hope. Even compared to a week ago, I'm feeling so much more positive about the future. And for that, I can't thank you all enough. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I hope to be able to pay your gift forward someday. That's absolutely wonderful. I must say, Alison, John's situation really puts a human face and a a tragic human face it must be said although an amazingly courageous human face as well Mm. on the sometimes sort of seemingly arid theoretical discussions that we've been having about NHS reform Mm. uh, and about the dangers of the NHS becoming a COVID only service during lockdown. Planet Normal listeners can spool back through the episodes to Tim Knox who we interviewed in May last year. He is uh, a researcher who has been through health outcomes in OECD countries and presented them in a user-friendly, easy-to-read form. He did a paper for the Civitas think tank, and I know a new version of that paper is coming out soon. And it shows undeniably that the UK, when it comes to oncology, stroke, heart disease, the kind of big three parts of medicine, Um, we are at or very near the bottom of the league table of advanced industrialised countries when it comes to outcomes for patients. The NHS is not the best in the world. To keep saying it is, is grotesque and irresponsible. I have to insert the rider, of course, that there are many great people working in the NHS and we're grateful for what they do. But that's what they're paid to do. 
Many of them go the extra mile, but many of them don't. And it strikes me when you hear from someone like John and you look at the photo as I'm now welling up of him and his beautiful young wife, the photo that accompanied your article in the paper and online, Alison. This is the reality of people refusing to talk about reform of the NHS. This is the reality of the political bun fights and the dogma and the vested interests determined not to change and the politicians and the journalists saying it's too hard we can't reform it we have to reform it because we are not getting value for money the nhs is smack in the middle of the international league table when it comes to funding it is not underfunded of course it could have more money but it is not underfunded and no amount of underfunding would justify in a country like the UK the terrible healthcare outcomes that we've got when it comes to oncology, stroke and heart disease. That is what the numbers show. And we simply have to grab this issue. And of course, it's wonderful what Telegraph readers are doing, what you've done, Alison. We know what Telegraph readers are like. We put on our Christmas jumpers every year and our reindeer antlers, don't we? And we take many phone calls from them and they, they, they donate what money they can to some of the Telegraph's excellent charities for our end of year appeal. That's one aspect of this story, but something good has to come of this. And if we can help John get treatment, but also nudge again this idea that we simply have to organise our healthcare in a better way, maintaining free at the point of use. Obviously, a panoply of European countries have free at the point of use healthcare, but far, far, far better outcomes than our NHS. It's become a cult, a national religion. It needs to be addressed and tackled so we can organise our healthcare in a way that saves more lives. That's brilliantly well said, co-pilot. I should just say that one oncologist I've spoken to in the last few days said to me that British cancer patients were getting a very basic level of care compared to the kind of care cancer patients got in high economy, you know, functioning health services. And that's something that John has learnt to his cost. And and finally, before we move on to the emails, I want to say that I want in the COVID inquiry, I want Lady Hallett and the COVID inquiry to address the victims like John. It's not just people who died of COVID that are the victims of the pandemic. Victims of the pandemic are people who, during the lockdown, were unable to get prompt medical treatment, were unable to go to school, were unable to access university, sporting facilities. There are millions of victims. And by the way, John is, I know now, taking looking into legal action against his GP, against his the hospital, which didn't see fit. And something that really rang out at me when I interviewed him was he said, I trusted the NHS because if they thought it might be bad, they wouldn't have let me go for so long without seeing me, would they? Well, he doesn't trust them anymore. If you're young and you're listening to the podcast, just scrape together the pennies and get some private health insurance because you won't regret it because this dying Leviathan will not serve your needs if you get seriously ill. Now onto our listener emails. 
the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read them. This week, we've had a lot of quick reaction to John's story. Chloe says, I'm so sorry to hear of John's story. We're constantly being told that the current spike in cancer cases is due to people not coming forward. That's not true. I came forward and so did John. We were ignored as cancer patients' lives were somehow less worthy than those of people with COVID. And here's one from Anthony. My son Jeremy died in June 2021 because a telephone doctor failed to diagnose pancreatitis. He was palmed off with stomach upset for nausea and back strain for searing pain in his back. He was found dead on the bathroom floor, age 32. I fear the collateral victims of reaction to the pandemic will never be properly assessed. Have all our sympathies, Anthony. Right, I'm going to lift the mood a little with another poem from the planet normal bard known as bob yes three cheers for the lady with the hose writes bob who dealt with those pests at the chelsea flower show i'm afraid that i was so impressed by her actions i was inspired to write yet another terrible poem thanks again for planet normal the pest free podcast so this is bob how to deal with garden pests attention all you gardeners the pests are back again squawking noisy nonsense and generally being a pain. They're spreading over Britain and there's many types to spot, from the orange-crested hypocrite to the double-barrelled clot. (laughs) They're attracted to the limelight and high-profile events. They infest our roads and bridges and they're immune to common sense. But these species are protected even though we think they're pests. If you deal with them too harshly, you'll be risking an arrest. So if you see some in a garden, don't let things come to blows. Just calmly walk towards them and drench them with a hose. (laughs) How great was that lady at the Chelsea Flower Show? It's just the the very calm way she walked over and watered the Just Stop Oil brats. I I think we're going to see some more at the FA Cup final, either in Wembley Mm. or the Scottish FA Cup final in Hamden. I was at the Rugby Premier League final at Twickenham last weekend when some Just Stop Oil activists came on and one of the rugby players actually (laughs) helped to drag them off pronto. The crowd went absolutely ballistic and started chucking beer at them. This is a terrific email from Miranda. Dear Alison and Liam, I gave birth to my first baby seven weeks ago. Like almost any new mother, it's been a roller coaster ride, but I've never felt more proud of my womanhood, looking in awe at how my body can sustain this little life as he feeds as well as healing itself from the physical trauma and pain of childbirth. I soon started going to my local breastfeeding support group for some social interaction, advice and reassurance. I really valued those couple of hours every week where we could be so vulnerable with each other and forge new friendships. I also signed up to the Facebook and WhatsApp groups where we could ask questions, often extremely personal, sometimes harrowing, and often in the middle of the night when you're in the thick of it and can feel most alone. I remember that very well, Miranda. One member of the group was engaged in a series of questions with the admin team and made the unfathomable error in one message of addressing us mothers as ladies. I attach a screenshot of the response. So just to say to listeners that Miranda's attached this screenshot of the conversation and this admin bossy boots has said, everyone, just a gentle reminder that we do not use gendered language as not everyone identifies as female 
even though they're breastfeeding mothers, Liam. So Miranda continues, I was feeding my baby at the time these messages came through and I was furious. I have no problem with individuals identifying as they, them, but at the one time in our lives when being made to feel proud of our womanhood has never been more important or obvious in what our feminine bodies are going through. I do not agree that degendering should be inflicted on the rest of us. I was also incredibly offended, but as I'm a straight woman, does my offence carry less weight? I felt very sorry for the lady who had caused the so-called offence. You can see her contrition and the patronising response from the admin to her apology. Needless to say, I promptly left the group as my small stand against this pervading, illogical and in this context, highly insensitive ideology. How ironic that those professing to be left liberal are often the most illiberal. As I watch my precious little baby sleeping peacefully on me, I want so much to protect him from such cultural groupthink, but the tide is so strong it is permeating almost every institution. It often feels like we are existing in the world of Alice through the looking glass. Thanks to both of you for your excellent podcast, which I've enjoyed listening to over the past three years. Best wishes, Miranda. Well, best wishes, Miranda, to you and your lovely boy. Oh, my goodness. What a precious time. And don't let that wretched woman put you off. Quick last one from Ian, Conservative and Labour. They're Tweedledum and Tweedledee. What one bans, the other taxes out of existence. The end result is the same. And on that scintillating piece of political analysis... That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's Alison's turn. It's got to be Miranda and her baby boy. Hey, how wonderful. Like, makes making me feel all gooey thinking about you with that lovely baby. And how lucky he is to have such a wonderful mum as well. So concerned for him. So please do send us your uh, full address to Planet Normal and you'll have a, a lovely Planet Normal mug in which you can put all that black coffee to keep you awake at 3am when he's feeding. <laughs> and the gin and tonic to make sure the baby... <laughs> when breastfeeding goes back to sleep if you enjoy Planet Normal please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify it helps others to find us and as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bajard Elliot Lampic Cass Ho and Louisa Wells stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him 